Yo, welcome my summer layer. I'm your host, Sam Yunan. So for this episode, I'm taking a break from delightful comic books and uh, delicious documentaries to dive into Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right by Ann Nelson, published on October 29, 2019. Part of that Shadow Network is the CNP. You will hear Ann and I mention them a few times. CNP is the Council for National Policy, founded in 1981. As Anne writes in the introduction of Shadow Network, the CNP spent decades building a framework to advance its agenda. One pillar has been its ability to master the basic rules of media and write new ones. The massive disruption of the news media has contributed to the fractured state of our politics. Middle America has been a victim of a colony collapse in journalism triggered in part by the headlong rush for profits in the news industry in the late 20th century. Oof. That's the spark for our conversation. I want to understand how media and how journalism is evolving and how if we as consumers and participants via social media or Twitter... God have mercy on our souls, are adapting. I'm also curious about this evangelical mafia. <laughs> that is my term and is way more classier than I am. And its long-term agenda to conform America to a particular biblical standard that ultimately undermines participatory democracy. Clearly, there's a lot there, but it always starts with curiosity, not authority. Shadow Network is a fascinating book. Uh, I highly recommend it. Okay, we uh, that's enough of this. Let's get into all this, shall we? Hey, Sammy. Thank you for taking the time to talk about your book. Your book was really good. I really enjoyed it, so appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm also a musician, so I love looking at your background. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't actually prepare any music questions, but just what did you, what kind of stuff do you like to play or do? Oh, well, I really like a broad range of music. Back in the day, I was a singer and a chick electric violin player in a rock band. Wow. But I've also done a lot of classical music. Mm -hmm. And I love world music of various kinds. So, yeah, uh, I think there's some excellent temporary uh, rock groups, but I certainly don't like all of the ones that are performing now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but nobody would, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I know. Uh, so before we get into your astonishing book, The Shadow Network, uh, you grew up in Oklahoma. So I want to pull uh, on one of your book's threads. What is that experience like? What is it like to grow up in Oklahoma? Well, um, that is a very complicated question. <laughs> already off um, the bat, eh? Already off the bat, eh? Um, because I, I, I suppose a lot of people have very mixed feelings about where they grew up. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful landscape. I don't think people, people realize what, what a beautiful place it is. And it, you know, my area of it is wooded with, with rivers and, and creeks and streams and big sky, big sky. And the people can be very kind hearted. But it's also a very new state. It was, it's one of the newest states in the Union and, and in some ways kind of rough around the edges. And from the beginning, there was something in operation that I call the three original sins of the United States because 
it, it, it had a lot of influence from the slaveholding states. It was one of the instruments for depriving First Nations of their land. Mm-hmm. And then the oil industry ruled the realm from the be- almost from the beginning. Uh, oil was discovered very early on, and the extractive industries really took over the, the political life and the economy. So, you know, it, it, the politics can be as changeable as the weather. It's had very progressive politics and, you know, very progressive statesmen like our Senator Fred Harris. And right now it has the biggest climate deniers in the U.S. Senate. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Uh, I watch NBA games in, and Oklahoma City Thunder are the only team that have a prayer right before the uh, national anthem and the uh, player introductions. And I don't know why, but out of the 30 teams, that makes sense that Oklahoma <laughs> would be the one to do that. And not even like Salt Lake City with all the Mormons and stuff. It's just like it makes sense that Oklahoma City Thunder would be the one uh, to kind of have this invocation to start a game. Absolutely. And in my high school... There, there really was a lot of influence of fundamentalist Christianity in the public space. So we had the fellowship uh, for Christian athletes in all of the schools I knew of. And so prayers were very much a function. And uh, it was only later after I left that I said, wait a minute, separation of church and state. And, and the other thing to, to know about it is that at that time, it was very much a dominant white majority, something like 90% with 10% African-American and and some very disadvantaged uh, Native Americans. And since I left, you know, over 40 years ago, it's become more diverse. And you've got populations moving in from Latin America and from South Asia and other places. But that's also created something of a cultural backlash. And I think that's part of what we're dealing with in this story. Yeah, uh, we're going to get deeper into the story, but I want to pick up what you said in the afterward on page 269. You said, as Susan Spick, um, the heroine of my last book, said, something must be done. I unexpectedly undertook this project, which is this book, as something I could do to address our national crisis. So... Can you elaborate on the first part of that sentiment, like you unexpectedly to undertook this project? Clearly, you saw something and felt it was enough like to put the time, the research, and all that work uh, to do it. Uh, so what was the impetus for this project? Well, I recently have, in recent years, I've been writing more historical works about other parts of the world, which I, I enjoy very much. And... I actually had something on deck, which was a project writing about the history of the sugar industry and the Caribbean and Louisiana and so on. But then I began to get very worried about the environmental crisis and the climate crisis in particular and the way that our government in the United States has just put the the, the car in reverse and is working against all of the measures that people have been trying to take to 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 remedy mm-hmm. the environmental crisis. So I undertook Shadow Network as a way of shining a light on the political mechanisms that were being used to take power in the U.S. Now, what I didn't realize is that in writing about the Council for National Policy and its affiliates, I thought they were U.S. 
And what I learned over the course of my research is that they're extremely active in Canada. Yeah. And there are a lot of extractive industries in Alberta, for example, and the Prairie provinces that are working hand in glove with, with the Coke machine mm-hmm. uh, of the former Coke brothers. And that the anti-abortion forces are are canvassing and really trying to to manipulate Canada's democracy. They're also responsible for a lot of the digital tools that were used in the Brexit campaign in the UK, as well as in Latin America and in Western Europe. So this is an international phenomenon. Yeah, we have less of the um, the factors and the pressures because America's got those kind of subcultures. Uh, when I was asking you about what it's like to grow up in Oklahoma, you mentioned some of them. Uh, so Canada doesn't have quite the same pressure, I guess, coming at it from all different sides, if that makes more sense. Well, I, I would, I mean, I haven't, I write for McLean's magazine mm-hmm. and I worked for the CBC some years ago. And certainly I would agree with you regarding uh, Ontario and Quebec. Yeah. But Alberta, I see influences yeah. in the prairie provinces, which are very, very similar to the states where we have a lot of influence from fundamentalist groups and from the extractive industries. I almost see it as this geographical unity running down North America. There's a lot there, and I want to start with kind of like a word that you used a little while ago, which is backlash. Because historically, to simplify things a little bit, like there's usually two types of uh, backlash, right? Where like the first is like, Somebody or group of people recognize that our society is going in the, in the wrong direction and they kind of, like you said, shine a light. And like we had examples like Galileo, uh, his belief like in uh, Copernicus theory that the Earth and all the other planets revolve around the sun was actually right. Um, so but mm. the church kind of disagreed and obviously put him in jail. Uh, Martin Luther King, who stood up against like poverty and racism and the uh, segregation, all these issues. What He was like, yo, I don't think this is a direction that society should be going in. And of course, he was jailed multiple times and eventually killed. That's the rare type of backlash that propels a lot of our um, growth and forward movements and stuff. But then there's another kind of uh, backlash where people suddenly start to feel anxious and they feel like this new direction that we're going in is like the, the world that they believe in is slipping. And that people are like Christians who get frightened by dinosaur bones, uh, the prayers in school when they get removed. And, and so this is kind of what your book is dealing with is more that anxious feeling where people, a group of people basically recognize that the liberalization and the secularization of America was we were slipping away from our values, quote unquote, our moral or Christian values. Is that a good way to kind of sum it up? Well, I see it as kind of an identity crisis, and that really is how, you know, when I when I in, in Shadow Network, my book, I, I show how these groups are are putting forward this concept that the United States was founded as a white Christian nation, and they claim that they go back into the founding documents and they get support for that. And when they say Christian, they really are imply that they mean conservative Protestant nation. Mm-hmm. But the way that other people read our founding documents is to say, wait a minute, all these people were running away from the, the United from, from England and from Europe because there was this attempt for the state to impose sectarian religion on people against their conscience. So the US idea was that religious freedom means you can have any religion or no religion if you so choose and you're all equal under the law and that nobody should impose their religious beliefs on anyone else. 
So these are two basically different readings of our entire history. And I feel that in, in some ways that's, that, that's the pretense of this conflict. However, after several years of research, I am convinced that what is really underlying this movement is money and the idea that if they gain political power, they can restructure our, our tax structure to favor the, the ultra-wealthy and the corporations, and that is happening very quickly, very emphatically, and that they can eliminate environmental regulations that dip into corporate profits for the good of the public. And that's happening very rapidly. So I think it's about the money. Yeah, you mentioned like this is an intersection between the, I guess, the Civil War, uh, which was over slavery, and then this discovery of oil, which is the money that you're talking about. It's almost like those two sins, I guess, for lack of a better word, seem to keep haunting America. Like those are two issues that America's never fully resolved or um, I guess, yeah, just resolved, right? I would agree with that. And I think that the whole our whole legacy of slavery goes beyond what was resolved with the Civil War because even after the Civil War, our society accepted in various places and in various stages the idea of second-class citizens. So African-Americans could be born here and have all of the qualifications of other citizens, but they didn't really have all the rights in, in, in many, many places, and they still don't in some places. So, um, you know, I guess the question is whether people see it as a zero-sum game. I, I really think that the whole of society benefits by having no one live without basic dignity and basic resources. Uh, but there are others who think that if they can deprive others of, of resources, that they can increase their own. So this is a philosophical difference. Yeah, so ideally, if a group like this wasn't uh, involved or meddling in America's direction, it's a minority group basically that's meddling in America's direction. How would how would then America as a country then know what direction to go in or how, like when on December thirty first you individually make New Year's resolutions, right? And you figure out where you want to go mm. for the next year, and then you often don't <laughs> stick to those resolutions. But it's a very nice noble exercise. But if this group wasn't so involved in American affairs, how would America know or who would be the ones kind of dictating where America goes or the resolutions that America is making? You know what I mean? Yeah. So so as, as I show in my book, Shadow Network, mm -hmm. it's not just this group, the Council for National Policy. It's also all of the movements it's connected to. And they are very much uh, stating that they are not, expecting to get majority support. And one of their slogans is, God doesn't need a majority. So their idea is that God speaks directly to them and that they can impose their will over everybody else. And they're operating on this principle. It's an idea of manipulating the electoral system in order to achieve their ends. And in my view, unfortunately, what the founders of, of the United States set in motion was a system with the Senate and the Electoral College where sparsely populated states in the middle of the country had a disproportionate influence in the Senate and in the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. So what we saw in 2016 was that Hillary Clinton won the popular election by 3 million votes 
and she lost the Electoral College by fewer than 100,000 votes in only three states. Is this a Democratic outcome? Well, I leave that to the listeners to figure out. Mm -hmm. But what you see, if you look at national opinion polls in the United States, is that most Americans don't agree with the policies endorsed by these organizations. Most Americans think that you really ought to have background checks for firearms. And every time there is a, 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 a disastrous school shooting, mm -hmm. people wake up more and more to the need for stronger gun control laws. Most Americans believe that there is no danger presented to society by marriage equality. If two gay people love each other, fine. It's no skin off anyone else's back. So this group is really trying to play this electoral game with the Senate and the Electoral College to overturn the public opinion and the will of the majority. And what they found is an additional mechanism, which is taking over the federal courts. They've been expediting appointments to the federal courts at record speed under Trump. And if they do that, then they can start to change the basic laws of the country to favor them and their hold on power. Yeah, so based on what you're saying then, like, is it possible then to look at the mistakes that the Hillary campaign made? And you document a number of them in the book. Oh, yeah. They took certain demographics, certain people for granted. Um, they didn't visit certain states like Wisconsin. You even had this crazy um, uh, moment in, in when you were describing one of the apps uh, for Hillary Clinton versus, like, uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Like, the, the Republican apps, basically, were meant to be able to share messages quickly and get recommendations from your brother and all these things. And the Hillary campaign had an app, basically, where you could walk into this room and, like, pet a dog. <laughs> uh-huh. It's painful, right? Yeah. And you're like, what's wrong with you? But it, it, So can we look at, then, the, the Hillary campaign and the mistakes that they made as a, a microcosm of how one side of the equation is kind of sleeping or not fully aware of the danger that they're in versus this other group that's kind of like really understands the system and is working hard and aggressively to make things happen for their minority group. Yeah, and that's why in my book I drilled down and really traced the historical process of this organization and how they had a long-term strategy. And I, I think that the book is pretty critical of the Democratic Party for not having a long-term strategy and kind of waking up every morning and starting over um, and really also abandoning some of the pillars of their representation. Uh, labor unions tend to represent the interests of working people in a democratic process, and the U.S. labor unions were basically abandoned and left to the devices of hostile legislation, and that's you know, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan, which were two critical swing states in 2016. So if you let your organizational capacity erode, it's all too easy for the adversaries to come in and build theirs up through money and, and persuasion. And that's what happened in 2016. Given then the, the, the crisis uh, that we had in the 2016, where the media was kind of making a lot of hay about Russia's interference in the election. When you cover your the spread of your book, the CNP and all these organizations connected to it, they were involved in numerous elections for decades. So why wasn't that a bigger story than, say, the Russia interference, which was just involved in one or two elections? 
Well, Sammy, I don't think they're separate stories. You have people from the CNP like Paul Weirich commuting to Moscow and, and making uh, alliances with interests in Russia. And you have organizations like the the Internet Research Organization in St. Petersburg producing memes that are distributed by Council for National Policy partners. And I think there's going to be a lot more information on this partnership that will be coming out. So they're not entirely separate stories. Mm -hmm. And one of the places where we've seen it emerge is with some of the memes that were targeted at African-American voters, discouraging them from voting for Hillary Clinton. And I I have seen some evidence that that had an effect in with African-American voters in Michigan. Perhaps it's quite a very important effect. But in terms of why people didn't look at the Council for National Policy and its partners, my theory is, well, I grew up in Oklahoma. I've also, I have relatives in Nebraska, but I've lived in, you know, I went to college in Connecticut, and I've lived in New York City for, for some 40 years. And so I, I have a foot in both worlds. And what I find is that people on the coast, and I'm talking about New York, Washington, Los Angeles, et cetera, don't waste any time thinking about the middle of the country. It's almost like they don't want to admit that it exists. They call it the flyover, as if that's all you're going to do with it. You're going to fly over it. Mm -hmm. And so if these organizations are cultivating and manipulating populations in the middle of the country through their media and their digital campaign tools, that happens off the radar of the national press. And I would argue, actually, that you have something of the same thing going on in Canada where you have the elite media of mm -hmm. the big cities Absolutely. in the eastern part of the country who are not paying a, a hell of a lot of attention to what the issues are in, in the prairie provinces, and therefore you have situations developing, and they erupt, and people are surprised. Yeah, well, and one of the themes in your book was the fact that a lot of the major media had either abandoned the middle or just were not funding the, the, the outlets like NPR that they had in the middle in the flyover uh, states. And so they were being unrepresented. So you were just getting a lot of like, so if you tuned into NPR, you're just getting a lot of uh, New York City stories, LA stories, and uh, Washington stories. Whereas when you lived in Oklahoma City, then you don't get anything that has relevance to your life. Well, I talk a lot about the role of an organization like the Associated Press. And in, you know, back when I started in journalism and, and in that time, I was also working for the CBC in McLean's, even though I'm from the U.S., um, the Associated Press played this really strong role in gathering information from their partner newspapers all over, you know, from all over, and then redistributing it nationally. So there was kind of a feedback loop for news. And when you have local newspapers that die off, then the Associated Press is weakened and has more financial difficulties, which is the case. And that whole feedback loop is weakened or eliminated. So we as a nation are not talking to each other very well. There are a lot of misconceptions. And some of the issues that are going on in this country, for example, the, the conversation about abortion, is based on total misconceptions and, in some cases, untruths. So somehow we've got to reconnect as a country that relies on active information systems. Yeah, so just so I understand what it is you're suggesting. So 
within our media journalism news ecosystem, we have three tenants. We have the traditional media that we all grew up with, which is NPR, New York Times. Uh, for a while, we, in the 80s and the 90s, we had the 6 p.m. news on ABC, NBC, ABC. And then eventually in the 90s or so, Fox came along and just started representing the conservative view. But at the same time, there was CNP and uh, Salem and all these um, radio stations basically were creating a third tenant, which was then presenting news and facts through a Christian fundamentalist conservative lens. Is that kind of like the, the three? Well, uh, I would tweak that a tiny bit. And I would say that Fox and the fundamentalist uh, broadcasters are very much on the same page. Mm -hmm. And that means that they really don't have, it, it, it's not rigorously reported, fact-checked, evidence-based reporting from multiple perspectives. And I, I taught for a number of years at the Columbia School of Journalism, and that's what you did. You, you, you really, you know, tried to make it as accurate as possible and to represent different perspectives. And if you want to hear a Republican speaking about his policy ideas, you can go to National Public Radio and hear that, and you can hear it respectfully you know, received. But you will not hear the same thing accorded to a Democrat on Fox or the fundamentalist broadcasters. So I would say the, the third pillar of this media ecosystem, as, as you described it so well, would be the social media and where people are within their, their social media bubbles. And they're quite influenced by the kind of information that is, is shared, but they don't really hear a lot of reporting or alternate points of view. Part of the, part of the reason, like you mentioned a little while ago, that the, the Democrats kind of get up every morning and just figure things out and just kind of do it. And um, you were just kind of right now just basically saying there's a consistent messaging. And part of that, this, this movement, it has a shared vocabulary. And I'm finding more and more when I read books uh, based on like uh, the alt-right or Republicans or other things like that, there is a shared vocabulary and there's like a glossary of terms that I have to learn and what they actually mean. And that's part of one of the reasons why this movement is so effective because the, the talking points are all established, but it's also the, the terms are clearly defined for everybody. So everyone knows what everyone's talking about when they say like uh, family and fairness and justice and these kinds of words. Whereas on the left, these words, they all mean different things to people, and people just kind of assume that everyone knows what this means, so that makes more sense. I think that's a terrific point, Sammy. And I think the difference is that these media that are supporting the radical right are based on principles of advertising and marketing. So you have an idea or a slogan or a brand, and you push it and push it and push it, and you make... Uh, your inroads with the public through repetition. Mm -hmm. And I think that professional journalism, when it's practiced at its best, and I would say NPR and the CBC and, and you know, various other outlets, you know, practice professional journalism, is, is a journalism of inquiry, where you try to go into a story with an open mind and report the facts and come up with a conclusion. And that's very different from an advertising message that's pushed at the public. So you have a fundamental difference, and you also don't have any outlets on the part of the Democrats or liberal parties internationally that are about 
creating platforms for advertising directional media. Mm-hmm. So it's not a level playing field. But these movements are also really great. Like you started, uh, there's a whole chapter where you talk about the NRA, for example, and um, it kind of zeroed in on the uh, issue of the Second Amendment, for example, and it got people really galvanized. The These movements on the right um, with CNP and other associations, they're really good at firing up the people and getting them excited. And there's an urgency that isn't there sometimes with the left. And like when we talk about the environment, for example, we're like, yeah, we should do something. or We, re- we should recycle more. But there isn't this urgency or this like compelling, like, I got to get out of bed because the earth is on fire. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. They're able to harness and unleash this like energy and get people excited so that they go out and do something, which is traditionally to vote. But they're at least getting out there and doing something. Absolutely. And this is very intentional. I think that the advertising methods used by the radical right and the conservatives are exactly action oriented. You know, you start you know, advertising, it's like, OK, we're going to make you want to buy something. Mm-hmm. And what these people have done is package messages to say, we want you to take action. This is how we're going to incite you to do this. And we will prey on your emotions. We will make you fearful. We will make you, you know, uh, anxious, etc. And one of the many problems with this approach is that a lot of this is built on simple untruth. For example, the NRA, whose who's leader is a member of the Council for National Policy, and I write about a lot in Shadow Network, says, oh, the Democrats want to take away all your guns. Well, no, actually, most Democrats do not advocate taking away all guns. Uh, you know, there are many countries where hunters and people who have, you know, legitimate reasons for having firearms that they use in a way that does not threaten society, you know, people deal with that. There are, are ways to deal with that and take more weapons out of the hands of people who will do harm to society. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't acknowledge that. They, they don't tell the truth. They make people think that there is a threat that doesn't actually exist, and that pushes them to act on it out of emotions of fear and anxiety. So part of the problem is that the Democrats and the other liberal parties are, have not been very good at establishing what their actual policies are for these populations who are the swing voters. Is there a point of no return for some of these people that, like, when you leave a cult, you have to experience a, uh, a period of being deprogrammed and you have to get back into <laughs> regular society, for lack of a better term. So is there a point then where these people, their minds have been so poisoned that they can no longer then be part of, a, like part of our society anymore? Like you almost have like two Americas now where like there's a parallel like viewpoint that is not based on any sort of reality, but it can't come back to reality. Well, I, I think that uh, that we have a hard core of radical right voters in the United States, and they've made it pretty clear that they're going to vote for Trump no matter what, and they're going to vote Republican no matter what. Now, the interesting thing is that they're well under 30% of our, our electorate, and there are actually fewer of them than there are hardcore voters for Democrats. But because of the Electoral College and other uh, irregularities in our, in our political system, 
they have undue influence so long as swing states are are uh, worked with a with a clever strategy. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what I, I think is going to be very interesting in the United States in the coming months is whether the Democrats focus on what actually has to be done for them to win an election, which they did not do in 2016. Yeah. One of the most insidious aspects of this was that from the very beginning of your book was they decided this was going to be a long-term strategy. Like this is decades of work of building and figuring out messaging, figuring out how to use apps as they came along, social media. This was not like a short-term like they were just upset that somebody got elected and now he's going to make like anti-environment laws or something. This is a long-term strategy. Like they're committed, fully committed to making this happen, um, to seeing their their vision executed. That's incredibly insidious. Well, yeah, um, but I would say that, you know, uh, you you could argue that after the New Deal, you had people in the Democratic Party who said, we want this national coalition that's going to include civil rights groups, women's rights groups, uh, trade unions, et cetera. We're going to make this into a functional coalition. Mm-hmm. So you have this moment that I described in the book where, there, where Paul Weyrich, who is, is a strategist for the radical right, says, oh, they figured something out. I'm going to replicate it, right? So I try to be very careful in Shadow Network to say that most of what they're doing is not illegal mm-hmm. and a lot of what they did you would just call smart yeah. right so i don't want to be excusing laziness among their opponents no that's fair and that's valid like we touched upon that with the hillary campaign uh, as a microcosm of the mistakes the liberals and democrats have made which is they take things for granted they always assume that that progress was linear yes and that like a, you know, a few years from now, of course, people would love like women, and of course, for you, few years from now, people would like black people. Like it's just going to be obvious. And I think they they did not realize or grasp that you actually have to work. Both sides really are starting to realize that their positions are not static. That just because we get up this today and we voted for Obama and we like black people doesn't mean that we're going to like black people tomorrow. Like you have to continue to work and ensure that this progress and fairness is consistently happening. I think that's a great point. And, you know, my my previous two books were about resistance movements against the Nazis. Uh, Red Orchestra was about the resistance in Berlin, and Suzanne's Children was about a rescue effort in, in occupied Paris. So in some ways, I think I specialize in writing about conspiracies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, no matter what side you're on, if you're trying to change the status quo, you have to look for their weak points. And I think in Shadow Network, I show how effective this group has been in looking at the weak spots in among progressives, because they take, as you said, they take it for granted that everybody is is uh, on on board with them, mm-hmm. and that's just not the case. And when you have countries, as you do in North America where there's a big division between the urban population centers and the rural areas, you really need to communicate between those sectors to, to really advance progress in a coherent way. I guess the analogy of what you're saying is like, once you get married, you're like, that's it. She knows that I love her. Uh, I don't have to do anything with my wife. I don't have to get her gifts or anything like that for her birthday. I don't have to like (laughs) 
take her out for a, a date or anything like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm done now. And then you just kind of like just take her for granted. Right. It's basically what you're saying. And it's like, look, we got married. I show you I love you. And that's it. And you don't do any effort for the rest of the marriage. It, of course, will wither and die. Like, you have to put the time and the effort in to make it happen or else there's going to be no love. That's right. Now the work begins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what happens is that in a lot of Western society, and I'm talking about North America and Europe, you've had a lot of urbanization going on and you have a lot of movement of, of capital from, from rural areas and, and commodities and extractive industries into the urban centers. And you've got a lot of people left behind. Now, I have relatives who are farmers in the Midwest. And they have a very, um, it's not that they're suffering terribly, but it's, a, it's, it's not a, a very predictable economic life. And, for example, in Wisconsin, you have dairy farmers who are just getting hammered by changes in the dairy market. These are families who are losing their way of life. They're losing their, their, their living. And they need to be represented. You can't just say, oh, uh, in, in, in terms of history, they're roadkill. No, they're citizens too. And even if they're a minority, you, know, you have to have a political system that listens to everybody and takes their interests into account. And Wisconsin is, was one of the states that Hillary lost, uh, partly yeah. because she did not visit them. Again, just taking it for granted that, like, oh, yeah, they'll come around. Well, I, I actually was speaking at the Wisconsin Book Festival, and it was clear that the Democratic National Committee didn't even get campaign literature to Wisconsin oh my. because they took it for granted. And when the trade unions in Wisconsin, and this was the public employees unions, were under attack, uh, Barack Obama didn't show up. So the entire sector and the entire constituency of the Democratic Party lost power, lost resources, lost steam, and then they were shocked when they lost the state. That's crazy. So there's a movement now where people are trying to de-platform certain people, trying to evict them from their platforms, either from Twitter or on the radio or, or on YouTube or whatever it may be. Is that a solution then for some of the Salem radio stations and things like that? Is that something you would consider as uh, viable? Because I'm weary because it's like, a lot of these things are fueled already by backlash, where they were not happy. So if you deplatform them, then that would create more backlash. Well, you could accuse me of being an idealist. I, I think that people have a lot of decent instincts. Maybe you can just reach them and inform them. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think is that if people could get the facts, and also have the human interaction, which can happen through the hard work of democracy, people going door to door, people having conversations, people having local meetings. Um, I think that things could get back on track. We have common problems. You know, the environmental crisis is not a local issue. You don't have air that stays in one place. Mm -hmm. You don't have toxic waste dumps that affect only one community. You know, we have a, a, a local problem. It's also a national and a global problem. It affects everybody. And somehow we have to get people moving in the same direction for a sense of common good. Now, it means rebuilding a lot of institutions that we've allowed to erode. 
including the fact-based professional journalism, including community interactions, including an honest state government structure that, that has been eroding in the United States. And that's really, really a lot of work. And I, I, I just hope that, you know, again, in, in the words of my, my heroine of, of the French resistance, il faut faire quelque chose, you got to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to drop your self-interest and whatever you're buying on Amazon or eBay and say, all right, how do we save the planet? So despite everything that you've written in the book and all the research and stuff you've done, you still remain an optimist that we can somehow get ourselves out of this mess. I didn't say optimist. I said idealist. Idealist. All right. And sorry. I, I apologize. Hope... No, no. That's fine. No. They're, they're related but not synonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all I know is that if, if you look at what I personally can do, writing this book and trying to explain my my case to people is what I can do and I'm doing it. Yeah. I've got kids. A lot of people have kids. And we have to think really hard about what kind of planet we're leaving to them after we're gone. And there is a, a matter of great urgency. Uh, you know, the Paris Agreement was not a solution. It was a first step. It needs to be built upon. And you have people who seem to have a disregard for the future of the earth who are undermining every attempt to, to mitigate the disaster. So unfortunately, the political mechanisms are all we have. Governments are what we have. International agreements are what we have. So even though there are these interests that don't seem to care about the future, I think everybody who, who does have an investment in it needs to really put their shoulders to the wheel and see what they can do. Yeah, I think that was one of the more upsetting aspects of your book was that a lot of this started because it was Christians or uh, Southern Baptists who were pushing for like things like abortion and stuff like that. And like in the grand scheme of things, environment is far more important. Like you said, there's other things that are going on where like we can get to abortion, but we got to get to it later. Like there's other things that we need to deal with first. Well, and what's particularly distressing is that the way that abortion has been played is is based on on a fallacious argument. Mm-hmm. What what has been sold to the Southern Baptists and the fundamentalists is really manipulative. What they say is that Democrats want what they call birthday abortions yeah. or partial birth abortions that they want to execute babies on the day of their birth. This is not true. This is a lie. No Democrat, and I have searched, you know, the Internet far and wide. I have never found a single case of anybody making this argument. Of course nobody wants to execute babies. (laughs) If I believe someone wanted to do that, I would vote against them too. But it's simply not true. They're being manipulated. And they're also losing information sources that would set the record right. So I have some sympathy for people who are being led down this road, and I think that, that you know, again, setting up these, these bridges of communication, this is a really urgent need on all fronts. But it, it's like I was saying, though, it's like it's the church, though. It's the church that's letting you down. That should be a place that should be inspiring and, like, I guess maybe this is in my, maybe I'm an idealist as well, but it should be a place where it, it should be inspiring and make you want to do things better and like grow and evolve. But what 
the their actions are kind of almost the opposite of what the church should be doing or the role that the church should be having in our society. Well, I, I would reply to that by saying that the church doesn't exist because, you know, you have religious organizations that are, you know, take, take a multitude of forms. And even within Christianity, even within Protestantism, there's such diversity and contradiction in, in what is a church. Uh, yesterday, I was at a program that was sponsored by Union Theological Seminary in New York and had the involvement of the Poor People's Campaign and Red Letter Christians. And they are arguing the case that we are our brother's keeper and we do support the, the preservation of God's green earth. So they're the church, too, and they're pushing back against this movement with everything they've got. I just don't think that they have as many media platforms at, at their disposal. So, you know, this is a real moment of truth in, in, in the history of Western civilization. All right. We will leave it there. Thank you so much, Anne, for your time. The, the book is called Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. It's out now. And where can people find you online to talk about the book? Well, they can find the book on Amazon and at their local independent booksellers. And they can find me on Twitter at A Nelsona, at A N E L S O N A. And I've been posting quite a lot about updates uh, and what's going on in this movement and efforts to, to contest it. And that's, yeah. Uh, I, they can find my past publications mm -hmm. on academia.edu. Are you surprised that uh, people are like slowly becoming aware of this movement and the people that are like, was this common knowledge you found or was that people just kind of surprised and like, I didn't know this was happening? You know, the crazy thing is I have a lot of friends who are at major news organizations, whether you're talking about ABC, the CBC, New York Times, Washington Post. They had not heard of this movement. They did not know what it did. But I guess that's a little bit of the thrill of investigative reporting. You dig up stuff nobody ever heard of, and then <laughs> they go, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the book. It is really super-duper and super-fantastic. Like, uh, like there, there's a lot of connections in there that I hadn't made and I hadn't fully realized. And I didn't realize, for example, that it went all the way back um, and this might be naive on my part, but that it went all the way back to slavery yet again. And that once the oil money and everything started getting involved, then it started to become like this bigger picture. And I started to understand, like, as I said in the beginning, like, we really haven't resolved these past sins um, and kind of addressed these things. And I think that's one of the issues when you talk about, like, there's all this work to be done. Those are one of those things where we have to eventually sit down and figure out how we're going to do a truth and reconciliation committee or something. Yeah. You know, I almost feel like it boils down to one question. You know, are you your brother's keeper, yes or no? And if you just think that the world was created for your own profit, you're in one category. If you think that we're all in this together, you're in the other. And I just have to have faith that there are more people in the second category. All right. Um, that's it. I think we covered a lot, didn't we? We did indeed, Sammy. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Anne. I will uh, let you know when it's up. So have a good okay, night. Okay, take care. Yo, welcome to uh, Notes and Noteworthy. That was my conversation with Anne Nelson.
there's a lot of stuff there. She's really fascinating, really well thought out person. I was thinking about as she was talking, I was thinking about friends of mine. They have a eight year old child, and he recently commented that if one person gets a lot of votes more than the other person, they are the winner. They're the president. <laughs> and it, it sounds so simple when an eight year old says it. Elections, especially American elections, would be so much easier if the person with the most votes won. However, it's really that simple. What works for an eight-year-old doesn't work for us adults. This harrowing book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, details and documents the insidiously sinister agenda from a powerful right determined to reshape the laws of the country and, of course, along the way, make a pile of money. Imagine the Amish declaring war on America for using technology and electricity. That they'd see us using cars and calculators and later computers and would do everything they can to preserve an agricultural, less technological dependent lifestyle. Their holy war would have severely hampered the growth of our technology. It would have changed our lifestyle. Thankfully, the Amish are kind people. It's the Southern Baptists we should be worrying about. In my conversation with Anne Nelson, she gratefully demonstrates how this isn't an American phenomenon. This is what's worse, too. This isn't just limited to America. This is happening in Canada and many other countries. It is worldwide. We are in trouble. Not since Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America by Nancy McLean, has there been a powerful book that encapsulates the interests and pressures manipulating and executing an agenda the majority of us do not want. We take so much for granted. Or worse, we assume progress is linear, that our society would naturally progress to equality. Complacency is a choice, but so is hope. And my hope is that we are actively seeking to be informed before speaking, especially before tweeting, and that we desire to be effective in our response. We can't fix everything, but we can fix some things. We can ease the pain of those who suffer, and we can certainly take better care and consideration of the environment. I'll close with a friend who wrote this on Facebook. I actually think she, just, she wrote it just last week. Anyone else enraged about the current political system in the U.S.? Any ideas how to make a difference? Any interest in getting more involved? I've marched. I've protested. I've posted. I've written and called my reps. I vote. But I feel... Like it's not enough. I'd love some more direction or people to collaborate with. How would you answer her amazing questions? Any ideas how to really make a difference? Any interest in getting more involved? Let me know how you would answer her questions. I am on Twitter, Facebook, and IG, all at my pal Sammy. Or check out Ann Nelson's book, Shadow Network. And let me know what you thought of that. Give me a book report. This is just the start. Thank you for listening to me in the Netflix world. Democracy, yo.